Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to the second week of our series called Dangerous Church, where we're, we're really peeling back the layers of what it is that Jesus meant when he said, I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And last week, we, we saw that the mentality that Jesus wanted his church to embrace was this idea that everybody is welcome. Jesus showed us in, this, in his life, and his ministry, and the things he said, and the, and the stories he taught. And it doesn't matter how many times Jesus said it, or taught it, or displayed it. Again, this is about us as a church, 2,000 years removed from him, continuing to live on in the legacy that he left, adopting the principles that he gave his church, and living these things out collectively. It's not just a matter of what I do, or the leadership does, or a few people. This is an all-hands-on-deck kind of a deal. That if we are going to be a force that is to be reckoned with against the powers of hell, there's certain ideals, traits that must characterize the church of Jesus. So along with the idea of everybody is welcome, I believe that Jesus' vision and dream for his church is that his church would be a place where people regularly and genuinely say, nobody's perfect. Because I got news for you, folks. There are a lot of people outside the walls of this place who would fear coming into a place like this. You know why? Because they feel like they wouldn't belong. They feel like they're not qualified to sit amongst folk like us. They feel like they would be just this huge, huge disappointment to the people in this room, if we actually knew what was going on in their life. I've actually had people tell me before, I'll be to church when I get some things kind of cleaned up, straightened up in my life. So even if they feel open to a relationship with God, to pursuing God, there's just this level of discomfort that they feel about taking the first step into this place. Let me tell you why that should bother us to the core. Because if there was one thing that people felt when they were around Jesus, if there was one thing that we can say was absolutely true about his ministry, is that when people were around Jesus, they felt like they belonged. Regardless of their background, they knew that they were loved. And here's the crazy thing. If I were to go around this room and ask every single person, are you perfect, are you perfect, are you perfect? Everybody here would say, no, I'm not perfect. But you know what we do? We give off this vibe like we are close to perfect, right? Do you know how I know that? Because I know all the time that I spend and all the time you spend and all the energy we give to this thing called image management where I try to shape and control what you think of me, and you try to shape and control what I think of you. And we do it in a variety of ways. We do it through the clothes that we wear. We do it through the cars that we drive. We do it through the, the way that we look. 
We do it through the things that we post on social media, on Instagram or Facebook. We, we do it on the things that we put our, on our resume to make us look extra impressive to those people who are looking at us, right? Because we want to be known as the perfect parent, the perfect spouse, the perfect student, the perfect employee, the perfect follower of Jesus. And yet in our heart of hearts, here's what we know. We know the truth is that there's a gap, sometimes a really, really big gap between what we project to be true and what really is true about us. And unfortunately, the church is not exempt from this. People look pretty perfect in here, pretty put together. We're well-dressed, well-spoken, well-behaved. Many of us very well-respected. And yet here's what I know. Not because you've told me necessarily, but just because I know. That in this place, in your life, there are some very, very deep, significant problems going on right now. Some of you, no matter what you say on Facebook, your marriage is hanging on by a thread, and you know it. Some of you have addictions that are just beating the mess out of you, and you face them every day, and you wonder, is today the day that I'm going to find victory? Some of you have these destructive behaviors in your life, and your family pays for it, and the people at work pay for it, and your friends pay for it. What I'm telling you is sin is having its way with so many of us in this place, no matter what it is, the image that we project. And yet, so many of us feel like we have to pretend. We have to hide. That ironically... And tragically, the place we feel like we have to hide the most is the place where we feel like we should be the most transparent in the church of Jesus. And this is why, friends, this is why Jesus got so riled up when he encountered people who were pretending to be something that they weren't. This is why Jesus' harshest warnings in Scripture are not for the irreligious people, the people who don't know him. They were for the people who claim to know him, but pretending to be something that they knew wasn't true. Why did he get so frustrated at this? Why did he get so riled up at this? Here's why. Because when Jesus came to establish his new community, his new church, he wanted it to be a place where people don't have to wear the mask. Where people don't have to hide, where people don't have to pretend, because you know why? He doesn't expect people to wear masks around him, and he says we shouldn't expect one another to wear masks and hide and pretend around one another. And that's why it's so refreshing that every once in a while in life, you encounter those people who say, I'm tired of hiding, I'm tired of pretending, here's my struggles, here's where, I'm, here's where I need help, here's my story, here's my sin, help me. And we come across one such story today. We find it in the book of Luke. It's 
a story that Jesus tells. It's, it's not an actual encounter. It's one that he shares with his disciples. But the spirit of this story is reflective of every human being. We are in one of these two categories. Here's what he says in Luke 18.10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Now, everybody knows as soon as Jesus lists those two people, everybody knows who the hero of the story is going to be, right? Who's the hero of the story going to be? The Pharisee. Yeah, he's the good guy. He's the devout guy. He's the guy that's got it all together. He's the religious one, right? And the bad guy is going to be the tax collector, For all the reasons I I laid out for you last week and all the ways that they were viewed in their culture back then, he's the one who's going to be the bad guy. And so Jesus throws this curveball to his audience when he mentions that the tax collector is actually praying. And the tax collector has the audacity to actually step foot on the temple grounds. How dare he, right? So he continues, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now again, this is just very reflective of the culture we talked about last week, how it's a very us and them culture. There's the insiders and the outsiders, and the Pharisees were the insiders, the tax collectors are the outsiders. And if you're an insider, you don't stand close to the outsiders for fear of tainting yourself or being associated with one of them. So you stay as far as away as you can. This is one of the ways that people like the Pharisee would express their devotion to God. God, I'm so devoted to you, I'm not even going to go anywhere near those kinds of people, all right? And then we hear what's going on in his heart. We hear his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like robbers or evildoers or adulterers or even like this bottom of the moral totem pole guy, this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Mm, 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 ain't I good? That's the heart of his prayer. And then we hear the prayer of the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up into heaven. There was a 45-degree shift. This man's heart was so broken with it, he could not make in good conscience towards heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now this Pharisee, he thinks he's got it all together spiritually. Not because he has a heart that's now tender toward God. Not because he even has a character that's reflective of God. Do you know why he thinks he's got it all together? Because he's got the list. And he's got all the boxes in the list checked off. That's why he thinks he's doing so well. I fast, I give, I jump through all the hoops that I'm supposed to jump through. I mean, listen to this. The Israelites were only commanded to fast one time a year, the Day of Atonement. This guy fasts 104 times a year. 
So he's got like 103 days of extra credit. He's like a spiritual overachiever. He is the poster child of the life God approves of, right? And then we got this tax collector who's the failure, the loser, the morally corrupt, the misfit. And he knows he's cheated people. He knows he's ripped off people. That's why he stands at a distance and he won't even lift up his head to heaven. Because he knows that he's unworthy. He knows he has no business even being at the temple. Because he has royally messed up his life. And he knows in his heart of hearts that if God is not gracious, then he is in really, really big trouble. And this wears so heavily on him, the state of who he is and what he's done and what his life is about and the condition where he's at, it wears so heavily on him, he does not even have the confidence to direct his eyes upward to God. You ever notice that? That when you feel guilty about something, you have a hard time looking in the eyes of the person you feel guilty with. If I were to lie to you or do you wrong and you and I encountered, I would have a really hard time of looking you in the eye. You know what else I've noticed this with? Dogs. Have you noticed that with dogs? Yeah, our dog at home, his name is Miles. Miles is a golden doodle. Our family loves Miles. He's so well-behaved, so well-natured. He does tricks. He's like everything a family would want in a dog. And when I say Miles' name in affectionate tones... I'm like, hey, Miles, how are you? Oh, he, his tail's wagging, and he's looking at me eyeball to eyeball. He's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to go somewhere? Are you going to give me something to eat? I mean, he's just locked in with my eyes, okay? But when he does something, when he misbehaves, which doesn't happen very often, but he does, typically it's like coming home to a pack of cookies that's been left out, and he's gobbled up the rest of the box. But you know one thing that he does, and I'm still trying to figure out, I've got to get him on camera doing this. He loves Hershey Kisses. And I know dogs aren't supposed to eat chocolate. It happens accidentally, and, you know, we'll have Hershey Kisses laying out sometimes, and I'll come home, and here's what I can't figure out. He will have unwrapped a Hershey Kiss and eaten the chocolate without eating the wrapper. I can't even open a Hershey Kiss that well. He's got claws and a mouth and zero IQ and can do better than I can. But my point is this, when we come home and we realize that Miles has been a bad dog, a bad boy, and it's typically while we're gone that he does something like that, and I get this tone with him where I say, Miles, he's not looking at me in the eye, he's like, hmm, yeah, that's my name, yeah, Miles, and then finally it's like he kind of comes around, and it's almost like he's got glasses on his nose and he's just kind of looking at me through that like that, Okay. Kind of he makes the eye contact with me. Because when you're guilty, you have a really hard time making eye contact, don't you? Now, cats don't do this. (laughs) Cats don't feel guilt because they have no soul, right? (laughs) When cats are looking at you, they're just trying to figure out how to kill you. That's all they're trying to figure out. So anyway, back to this Pharisee, or back to this tax collector. This tax collector, 
he feels such extreme guilt and burden for what he's done that he just beats his breast in frustration and with anger of himself of, how did I let myself get here? I know that my life isn't right before God. And then a twist comes in the story when Jesus describes both men and kind of where they're at, what they do for a living, and their, their demeanor when they come before God. And the twist comes in the story when Jesus says, that man, the tax collector, the wrongdoer, the morally corrupt, the cheater, he, not the Pharisee, not the right thinker and the good doer and the religious guy. It's the tax collector who goes home that day in right standing with his creator, with the weight lifted off his shoulders, with God smiling upon that kind of heart. He's the one that go home, goes home that day in right standing with God. So let's do a little rewind, okay? Let's assess both of these men's righteousness quotient, Okay? And let's compare and contrast the Pharisee with the tax collector. So if you're taking notes this morning, just maybe write a T for tax collector and a P for Pharisee, and we're going to assign points here for just a moment, okay? Out of these two men, which of the two do you think read their Bible more, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Pharisee. Give a mark to the Pharisee. Which of these two men do you believe probably prayed more often than the other, the Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee. Which man do you feel like had a better grasp of doctrine? They had their systematic theology all ironed out and could explain it easily to people. Which person do you think would be that one? The Pharisee. Which person do you think probably attended more religious services than the other? The Pharisee. Which person was more respected by the other devout people of the community? Pharisee? Tax collector. Pharisee. Which person in this story was more consciously aware of their desperate need of God? It was the tax collector. And don't miss this, because Jesus is going to give us a definition here that would be good for us not to forget. Jesus tells his listeners, listen everybody, he says, this awareness of And not just an inner awareness, but this actual public confession, this coming out of my desperate need of God in light of who I am. That is what Jesus calls humility. No pretending, no hiding, no masks. And Jesus says, this guy, he's the hero of the story. So what was Jesus' dream for the church? What makes the church dangerous? What makes hell quake when they confront this kind of church that Jesus is talking about? It's a church where everyone's welcome. Jew, Gentile, black, white, yellow, red, young, old, male, female. Wherever you're at, whatever you struggle with, everybody's welcome. And it's also this, that in that awareness that everybody's welcome, we also, we're also aware that everybody else has something in common that nobody is what? Nobody's perfect. Nobody wears the mask. We all just keep it very, very real in here. Now, don't miss this detail. Why did the tax collector not just go into some field, sit under a tree, and have this prayer? 
Why did he not just stay in his home away from the temple and have this prayer just between him and God? Why did he go to the temple? Why did he go in the presence of others to pray this very heartfelt, repentant, contrite prayer? Why? Here's why I think Jesus told this story. Because when you go before the presence of God and you stand before God, and you stand before other people who are pursuing that same God. And you say, God, I am the one in need of your grace. There is a kind of freedom in that that you don't get when you're alone. You only get when you come before other fellow strugglers and you say, God, it's me who needs your grace and in that freedom I no longer have to pretend, I no longer have to hide, I can take the mask and I can crush it. Here's why. Healing, true healing only comes when you are known. The real you. Not the fake you, the ideal you, the projected you, the mask you, the real you. And sickness comes when we hide. And I got to admit, friends, there's been times when I have walked into this place on a Sunday morning or I've been with people in community before and I'm struggling and I'm needing someone to pray for me and I'm needing help and I'm in meltdown mode. But someone comes along and asks, how you doing? Fine. Isn't Jesus great? But all the while, I'm feeling like this tax man and just needing to get something off my chest. But I've become a pro at times at just faking it. Anybody else? Because what would they think? I think it's partly because we live in a world where we're just always taught reflexively, reflexively to hide, to pretend, to project. And I'm here to tell you what, folks. It is a tactic of hell. Here's what hell wants to do. Isolate you. Divide and conquer. Make you feel so ashamed, so alone, so unworthy. Such a disappointment. That's their tactic. That's why God says the remedy for that, the prescription for that with his people is this. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. There's healing that comes when we're just open and we're saying, this is me and God have mercy on me. There's freedom in that. That's why Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 6-2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. 
that what Jesus was about, the idea that you're welcome and you belong and you're loved no matter what burden you're carrying, that fulfills everything that Jesus was about. And listen to what it says here because this describes some of us. If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Don't you love that? What he's saying here is we've all got burdens, we've all got hurts, we've all got pains, we've all got problems. And if you think you don't, and if you go around acting like you don't, you're just deceived and you're so proud. But again, I know why we do it. Because in our world, to be accepted, to be a card-carrying member, you have to kind of prove to everybody around you that I'm smart enough and I'm good enough and I'm slick enough and I'm cool enough and I'm successful enough and I'm, I'm wealthy enough and I'm, I'm just enough. And then you'll want me in your group, right? I can become an us and I won't no longer be a them. Here's what Jesus says. He blows up the whole paradigm. And he says, no, 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 no. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create this community of people who know me and they know the kind of love and acceptance that they get from me. And in this community, it's for the misfits. It's for the people who failed. It's for the sinners. It's for those people who've been so humbled by God that they come to a place in their life where they say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am everything but put together. And Jesus says, when his church begins to act like that and behave like that and provide an environment like that, the gates of hell are powerless against that. Now the turning point for this story is when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what he's saying here in layman's terms is this, God, my whole life so far, I've been doing things my way, and look at the mess that it's got me into now, Lord. Lord, I want to start doing things your way, so please help me, God, as I endeavor to live the life that you want me to live. And you know what's interesting is this realization comes in so many different ways for people. For those people who were in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, here's what it looks like. They take a bold step to go to their very first group meeting and they sit down and the very first thing they say is, hi, my name is Solomon and I'm an alcoholic. And tell me, because you know, you know what AA groups are like, right? What is it they say in response to that? Hi, Solomon. That's just their way of saying, welcome to this group. We accept you. They aren't celebrating alcoholism. They're celebrating the fact that a person has come out of the darkness into the light and into a community group of people, and they're willing to say, I've got some problems. Would you people please help me get through with what I'm struggling with? And sometimes it takes months and years and decades of going through hell to get to that point in their life. And they've burned through marriages and they've lost jobs and they've been arrested, but they finally come to a point in their life where they say, I need some help. And this group says to them, you are welcome here because all of us are meeting on common 
I want to show you a video. It's by a lady named Brene Brown. And she talks to us in this video about the difference between sympathy, what the Pharisee offered, just kind of a, a look down on somebody, and empathy, this environment of meeting on the common ground of brokenness and need. And, and I want you to listen. It's a little cartoon video, but I want you to listen, really listen to what she's saying and as you see some things played out here in the video. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. What makes something better is connection. The writers of Scripture acknowledge that we have one who can connect with us in every way possible that we need connected with. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us and our weaknesses. In other words, he's not at the top of the hole just looking down. But we have one. Jesus. Who has been tempted in every way just 
as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace, listen, to help us in our time of need. There's a question for you. When is our time of need? What time is it right now? Like, are we ever without a time of need? And Jesus is always there. He's always descending down into our cave, down into our pit, down into our darkness, down into our guilt, down into the ugliness of our sin. And Jesus says, you're not alone. I'm here with you. And Jesus, I want you to know, he invites the real you. Not the artificial you, not the pretend you, not the mask you that you project. He invites the real you. Because only in being really you can you really be loved. And Jesus said, I'm going to establish my community, my church. And when they operate like this, when they're real with one another and they love one another in their realness, in their faults and flaws and sins and ugliness and everything that everybody brings to the table, when they do that, hell is going to tremble because it will realize it is powerless. So for the next few minutes, we're going to practice just keeping it real. I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to experience a kind of freedom that maybe you've never felt in a place like this, but it doesn't come easy. Because here's the first thing that it requires of you. It requires of you today, before God and before others, to say, God, I'm not one of the perfect ones. So we're going to have a time of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to do something very, very un-Bachelor Creek-esque. Not that I've not seen it happen before, but it's the rarity more than the norm. I'm going to ask you that if this is you today, if you're a struggler, if you identify with this man, if you've come into there here today and you've assessed your life and you've done that deep gut check and you're at that level and you just felt like beating your breast today instead of just putting on a smile. Or you're tired of hiding and you're tired of wearing the mask and you're tired of pretending. You're tired of what you're projecting knowing it's so unreal that you'll just come up here. And you can stand and pray as that man did. You can bow and pray. And you'll just say these words. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't claim to understand it, folks, about what it is that happens in moments like that. But I know that I've seen it before. And here's what it does. It releases in here a kind of freedom of the soul. And it brings about a, a kind of, of power 
when I can stand in front of a community of believers and stand before my creator where it's safe and where there's love and I can say, God, it's me who needs your grace. I don't claim to understand it, but I know there's so much power and freedom in that. And here's what I'm just tired of. I'm tired of stuff like that always happening in AA or other 12 Steps programs instead of the church. Because nobody should help people or love people better than the church of Jesus Christ. But it's all up to us. So I don't know what it is you're struggling with today. Maybe, maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's alcohol, drugs, porn, shopping, eating. I don't know what it is. But it's made you come in here today where you don't feel like you can tilt your head 45 degrees up. Maybe it's a decision you made a long time ago and it's haunting you. Maybe years ago and nobody knows this, maybe you had an abortion. You were scared, you were pressured, you were alone, and you felt like that was the only option. And what they didn't tell you at that clinic that day is the nightmares that you would live with the rest of your life because of that decision. And you come into this place week after week, year after year, like this. Maybe it was a decision you made and an action that you took that train wrecked your marriage. And the reason why your kids have two homes to go to now is because of something you did. Your spouse wasn't guilty, you did it, and you own up to it. God's mercy is there for you today if you've done something that you regret or other things that I didn't even mention. Maybe there's a a spirit that you have of judgmentalism and superiority. That you're like the Pharisee. You're just always looking down upon people. Well, they don't act like me. They don't think like me. They don't talk like me. They don't vote like me. They don't believe like me. And you're in dangerous territory, folks, if that's you. Because you're not the hero of the story that Jesus told. Here's what I know. We don't want to be a place where when people confess and they come clean about some things in their life, we don't sit in our pews with our head cocked up saying, I wonder, wonder what's wrong with them. I wonder what they did. You know what they did? They did the same thing you did last week, last month, last year, a decade ago, and they're ready to come clean with God about it. That's what they did. The same thing you did, but you just keep pretending, hiding, wearing the mask, acting like you didn't, but you did. And you know who's going to go home right with God today? They are. Are you? We need to be that kind of community, folks. Or we don't have a chance of being what Jesus wants us to be. If we want to be that force to be reckoned with, that the gates of hell shudder when they think of Batcha Creek, then it behooves us to pray that prayer in this place on this day. So after I pray, we're going to sing a few songs. We save some of our worship to the end. And I want you to know if you come, You're not going to be alone. I will be here with you in the pit as a fellow struggler 
declaring to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the one who descended through space and time. And he came into our darkness, into our cave, to where we live, to experience life as we know it. And he can identify. And he says, I've been there. And I'm with you. And he left on planet Earth this community called the church. Who when we get together, whether it's Sundays or any other day through the week, we can lock arms and we can lock hearts and we can lock lives together and we can say, yep, I've been there. And I'm with you. And nobody's perfect. So God, may this be a time and place where we turn a corner as a church and nobody feels like they've got to come here week after week with a mask or pretending or hiding, Lord. Thank you that we can make this a place where people can feel free to come in a community of love and safety and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you, Lord, for that kind of a church. We hope, Lord, that our response now will be all-pleasing to you. In Jesus' name.